Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Can you make yourself the least of all by insisting on your title and station? Can you sacrifice everything for the sake of others without them liking it? Are you able to repeatedly flip an argument on its head until no one is able to stake out a position? Can you use metaphor over and over again to illustrate how you should be treated, but then turn on your own use of metaphor because not only are you not talking about oxen, but you are not talking about food? If you answered yes, your name must be Paul, and this must be 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 111 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul begins, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And here it's just very important for our listeners that his question, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord, refers to the criteria for what an apostle is. An apostle, a messenger, is someone who received the commission directly. That's why in the Byzantine tradition they have this special title called Equal to the Apostles. You can't call someone who was not in scripture encountering Jesus in the story of the Bible an apostle. You know, for example, you have Nina of Georgia, you call her equal to the apostles. Cyril and Methodius, equal to the apostles. The list goes on. He's the head of everything. As far as the community is concerned, he makes the law. I mean, yes, he is bound to serve the Torah, but he is the head of the community for them. So he is free in the eyes of the community. But then this chapter discusses what does it mean to be free, why free, and what do you use that freedom for? And I think that's really important to look at. But verse 9 is also dealing with hierarchy. It's freedom and hierarchy. In his question, he establishes that he was commissioned directly by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he continues, are you not my work in the Lord? Look at the structure of the sentence. I can do what I want. I am free. I am an apostle. I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reversing it, not as questions, but as statements. And now he's saying, are you not my work in the Lord? I made you what you are. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This reminds me of the way Paul speaks elsewhere when he talks about not being concerned about other people's children. He's saying, look, this isn't about what everyone can do or everyone can't do. Remember, they're looking to Roman society and saying, why can't we be like the Romans? Paul is saying, look, whatever's going on around us, 
in this household, I'm your father. I am the apostle. I'm the one who established this community. And you are the seal of that apostleship. My defense to those who examine me, to those who parenthetically question my freedom. It's interesting now how Paul has just gone through this exercise where he's establishing that the way they're using freedom is unto destruction. And now he's turning the tables and saying, now don't tell me that that means I can't go eat meat offered to idols because I'm the Kung Fu master. You don't even understand what I'm saying, so how are you going to examine me? So he turns it up on its head, and now he's going to show them how their freedom is actually slavery to their own arrogance. Well, this is, I think, especially to an American audience, when we think of freedom, we think of freedom as ontologically something good, and we think it's something to be attained. We're always looking for freedom. When we free people, that's something good. But one thing that Paul is really emphasizing here is that freedom is for something. Once you're free, you do something with it. Once you're allowed to do something, it's important. It's like a story that I heard about a guy who died. They put him in the morgue, and he got up, he walked out of the morgue. He's like, why is everyone all freaked out? And like, Because we thought you were dead. After a while, and he saw how everyone was reacting, he kissed the ground and said, I thank God because I guess it wasn't my time yet. So then the question isn't, oh, what a nice story. Now it's, what are you going to do? You get your life back. Now you're free from whatever Caesar tells you you have to do. What are you going to do with that freedom? Are you going to sit back and be happy that you're no longer subject to Caesar? Or are you going to do something? And this is why Paul says that the only point of freedom is to love. And this is why I disagree with Western pedagogy and parenting. I understand that children need freedom to explore and to grow. I absolutely agree with that statement because they have to learn how to make decisions, become accountable. But at the same time, in Scripture, you have two contradictions that are put together, freedom and slavery. Scripture never says the goal is freedom, and it never says slavery is good, but it describes freedom in Christ as slavery to Christ. So it's not black and white. This is the point. And that's why Paul seems to always vacillate in his letters. And we have this also in Hosea chapter 8, several times throughout Hosea, where the people are freed. The Lord gives them everything they need. But what do they do with their freedom? They set up a king. They set up an idol. They set up all the trappings of their enslavement that they had in Egypt. And so he says, you're going back to Egypt. I can't keep these two together. I can't give you the freedom when you want to give your freedom away to these uh, slave masters. The people of Corinth are looking for slave masters. And Paul says, you're enslaved to me. You're enslaved to Jesus. You're in this household. Am I not an apostle? Am I not the one who is the captain and the free leader? who has established the freedom in Christ for this household, which means your slavery and your duty. In other words, you have to bring the leeway to set people free from the tyranny that engulfs their lives. But you have to bring the tyranny in order to keep them from becoming entrapped once again by the very slavery that engulfs their lives, which is egoism, abuse, selfishness, divisiveness, all of these things he's fighting against. I mean, a very concrete example. I can give my children a pair of shoes. 
great, now they have the freedom, now they have a gift, now they have something they can use. But then, one of them says, I want to wear the shoes today. No, when you wear the shoes, you ruin them. I don't want you to wear the shoes, but I won't wear the shoes. And then every day for a week, there's fighting and arguing over a pair of shoes. Now, I ask the question again, do the shoes liberate them? or do the shoes enslave them? They were given with the intention that it would liberate them, but in fact the shoes have enslaved them. And this is what happened to the Corinthians. The Corinthians used their freedom to then say, I'm more free than you are. I'm better at being free than you are. This is why people misread the story of the prodigal son and his merciful father. They imagine that when the prodigal son left, he left as a son, and when he came back, he came back as a hired servant, and then the father said, no, you're still my son. But that's an incorrect reading. Because in a Roman household, there's no difference, as Paul tells us, between a son and a slave. The problem is that the prodigal did not realize he was no different than the hired servants until he abused his freedom. But he never stopped being a slave in his father's household. This is the beautiful contradiction, because the gospel wants us to love freely but it understands human nature. Human nature doesn't seek freedom to love. Human nature seeks freedom to do what human nature wants to do, however it's manifest by your particular strand of DNA. And that's the way it is. So there's a tension. The older son was given everything. He had the complete freedom to do whatever he wanted in the house. And what happened? He became a slave to it and even wanted to enslave his brother to it. The older son, I believe, would be analogous to the intellectuals in Roman Corinth. Yes. Very clearly. So let's continue. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Everybody else gets to do all these things. Why are Barnabas and I excluded? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now, before we get to verse 8, I want to point something out here. This is not Paul saying, look how great I am because I don't take a salary. I don't take a salary because I love you and because you're my kids and I care about you. No, that's not how he's talking. He's saying, shame on you. What right do you have to question anything I say when you don't know the gospel, which he's been establishing all throughout the letter, and you're not even treating me respectfully? Shame on you. Just listen to what I'm saying. Don't forget the pecking order. Who do you think you are? That's what this is about. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment. Am I? Remember, everyone, that this is falling on the discussion about eating and what eating is for and eating meat that is dedicated to idols you may eat and you may drink as long as you don't cause anyone to stumble as long as the eating and the drinking is fulfilling the law of love and here we go back to eating and drinking we go back to freedom and now we see what the purpose of the eating and well, drinking is well now he's going to hit them with the torah that's the beauty because they think oh we don't need the law all we need is love paul Oh, and they don't even know what they're talking about. We're free. We can do what we want. He's coming at people who think that they got the meaning of the gospel and so therefore don't need the Bible anymore. They don't need the Torah. They think freedom in Christ means you don't have to read Leviticus. But that's not what Paul is saying. And so now he's going to hit them with the instruction. Does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, 
you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So in Deuteronomy, we have this rule that's meant to safeguard the well-being of the entire household, even the least in the household, which is the animal. And you're not respecting and taking care of me? Shame on you. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? In other words, it's not that God isn't concerned about oxen, it's that they are getting things backwards. It's not that you shouldn't take care of animals, but your priorities are upside down. You don't know what you're talking about, you supposed learned people. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? So is he talking about the animals or is he talking about people? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. The subtext here is that they think Paul should do all that work without hope. And in fact, Paul does do all of that work without worldly hope. He works so that the community benefits, and the hope is that we receive these things and then we give them to the weakest and most vulnerable. That's how this Torah teaching works. And so when he gains, he gives it to the weakest of the group because the people in the community are flipped, just like we in our communities are flipped. We think that it goes to the people who did the most work, the people who are working the hardest on these things, the people who came up with the ideas. The most valiant workers in the community are the ones who get paid first, are the ones who get the first benefits, are the ones who get the accolades. And he's saying, no, the first one to get of the harvest is the ox who's threshing. That's the first one to benefit. So he says, because I am the father of the community, that is why I'm not the first one to receive. My hope is that there's going to be enough benefit that it's going to work its way up from the bottom to the top. And if it makes it that way, thank God. If it isn't enough, thank God. Right, but again, he's doing it in such a way that it's not comfortable for them. Because the worst thing you could ever have in 1 Corinthians is a noble, kind pastor. Because if you're noble and kind, then the people will like you. And if the people will like you, then you're doing it for your own enjoyment. We're not dealing with the stewardship that has been entrusted to Paul anymore. I want to really stress that because it comes out later in the letter. Paul is being a jerk on purpose. And the funny thing is about the way he's being a jerk is it's trickle-up economics. He's being a jerk for their sake and their benefit, and they're going to resist it because they would rather Paul honor them then shame them. It's that simple. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? In other words, if you do want to give me something, don't feel good about yourself because you owe me. This is the least you owe me. If you pay taxes to the people who supply you roads, wouldn't you supply me something because I gave you your freedom? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Aha, this is the main deal. You're going to kiss my hand and not because you like me. And you're going to do your duty and not because it makes you feel good. Because it isn't about you and it isn't about me. It isn't even about the household per se. Unless you understand the household as all of creation. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the main issue. We are getting back to the question of priorities. And he's showing them how screwed up their priorities are. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? 
And what's beautiful about this is that he's saying these liturgical people are on the level of the ox. Even the liturgicist eats when he's threshing and you're not feeding the apostle. It's a slap. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Nice. But I have used none of these things. Paul is not eating while he's threshing because he is your father. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. I'm not going to boast that my parish loves me. I'm not going to boast at how much I love my job. I'm not going to boast about anything except the gospel. The only boast that he's allowed to have is that he continues to teach. And the only evidence of that is that his people are taking care of each other, not that they're taking care of him. If they're taking care of him, then he can be accused of taking what he deserves for the sake of his ego. When he says, you guys take care of each other, that's what I'm trying to teach. I want a community that can take care of each other. I want a community in which the strongest take care of the weakest. Like you said before, Father, trickle up economics. If it makes it to me, it may make it to me, but I won't ever tell you that it does, and I will not take a cent from you because I am going to be not self-sufficient, but only sufficient in the gospel. And we know what are the wages of the gospel. We know what the wages of the gospel are. It's Jesus and the crucifixion. As soon as he gets his crucifixion, then Paul gets his reward. Now, here's the trick. People want their leader to look good. The first thing they ask in a presidential election is, does he look presidential? People want their priest to be appealing and attractive and respectable because they understand in their DNA, because human beings in their DNA are still tribal, they understand that the alpha male, the leader, male or female, but this alpha male function reflects on the entire community. Nobody wants an alcoholic for a president. They want a president who looks austere and who exercises self-control. And then they want to give that president honor because then they're honoring themselves. Right. Paul is flipping it around. He's presenting himself as a very unpleasant character who is not appealing. So that if you do honor him, which he's telling you you have to, it's painful for you. And when he does boast, he's not boasting to build up the community. He's boasting to shame the community. When people want to boast about their leader, it's to build themselves up. But when their leader boasts in such a way that it puts them down, then we're dealing in the cross. Believers like talking about the resurrection more than they like talking about the crucifixion because they want to have at their forefront the one who sits at the right hand of God, not the one twisting in pain on the cross. Now, fortunately, our fathers knew this, and this is why we put crosses in our churches. We wear crosses around our neck because the cross is where Jesus is glorified. Sitting at the right hand is an afterthought. That's, it doesn't even happen in all the Gospels. It happens afterwards. And it's still beyond us until the second coming. It's beyond us. But the crucifixion we put in front of ourselves because we will forget because as soon as we take our eyes off of that, we do like what it said in Hosea. We set up rulers for ourselves. We have all the freedom and all the resources in this country 
Yet we want a tough leader who can sit across the table from Putin and show how tough we are as Americans. Why do we care what Putin says if we really believe we're the most powerful country? And nobody votes for a president who's going to show you how stupid your own constituency is. <laughs> Let's get someone on the platform who's going to show us how wrong we are. <laughs> they don't get many votes. No. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So don't tell me it was your calling. Because if it was your calling, then you're not serving the Lord. Because when you say it was my calling, what you mean is, I really feel that I like doing this. Well, if you really feel that you like doing this, then that's your reward. But if you're doing it because someone told you to, that's obedience. And then we're down to brass tacks about the gospel. Right. When Mother Teresa was fulfilling her calling, it's when she would go and to the first thing she would do when she would enter a new place is scrub the toilets. That was her calling. Even though she would win all these accolades from society by doing the least thing, this is where she fulfills a calling. So Paul is trying to make sure that those in his household are also listening to him against their will so that their life in the gospel becomes a stewardship entrusted to them just as it was entrusted to Paul. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. My reward is my freedom as an apostle to do what I don't want to do. What a statement. And to not take the rights that are owed to him. What a statement. I was set free, and I'm not going to forfeit my freedom for a bunch of sniveling Corinthians in order to undermine the gospel with empty boasting. I made my money, I worked hard for my money, so that I could give it away and not enjoy it. And give it away in such a way that you don't feel good about me giving it away. I have the right to own this house. I have the right to do this. I have the right for my kids to go to this school. And I am giving up that right for the sake of the gospel so that no one can say that I did this job to earn money, to get a house. I did this job because it was my job to do. If pastors took this message seriously, it would transform the face of the earth. It would transform the face of the earth. With so many churches and so many denominations and so many people claiming to read the Bible, if 1% of us took this seriously and preached this way, it's impossible to calculate the impact because it is so radical. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. And here, how can you win as a slave? Because you're not fighting for yourself. It's not empty boasting, it's not empty striving. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. So the point is that he might teach the gospel and free others through this teaching. He does whatever it takes. So he really is taking the teaching from chapter 8 and blowing it up, expanding it. This isn't just about not scandalizing somebody by eating or not eating. It's everything you do is so that others can enjoy freedom. This is the opposite 
of how we function in the United States. In the United States, we function and do whatever we can so that we can be free. Absolutely. That's why the average American uses four times the natural resources of any other human on Earth, because we take so that others can't. Paul is saying, I will not turn on a light switch until everyone has electricity in India. I will give away everything I can, and I will do whatever it takes so that every single person has light in India. And once everybody has light in India, I will not turn on my lights, lest people say that I did it so that I could have light. What Paul is doing is showing you how power can be made to function in a godly manner. When you are in the position of power as Paul is, you use it to feed the people in India. You don't use it to feed yourself, let alone those closest to you. When you have a fundraiser in the church, do you use the fundraiser so that your church can now do more things than at once? Or do you do the fundraiser so that you can put food in someone else's mouth? So you can say, we work in our parish so that others can eat. We don't work in our parish so that we can sit back and relax more. We do everything we can so that others enjoy freedom. This section, verses 19 through 22, reminds me of Paul's statement elsewhere where he talks about entertaining men when you are actually entertaining angels. Beware. Because what Paul is doing here is showing you what your duty is if you're going to submit to the mission to preach the gospel. You have to become like a covert agent for the kingdom. Whatever group you're with, you have to look like one of them. You have to blend in, not to become one of them, but in order to win them over to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is an angel among the Jews, an angel among those under the law, an angel among those who are without law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. So among the weak, he's an angel in their midst. They don't realize it. He's an angel who is a messenger, which is the actual meaning of the word, bringing the gospel from Jesus Christ our Lord who commissioned him at the beginning of this chapter. It's not who you are, it's what you do. He's assumed how many identities here, but he's functioning the same way in every situation. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, whether it's working in a fancy corporate office or collecting garbage, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, what's interesting here about his statement, part B of verse 23, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. He's been talking all along about how the ox is not muzzled while he's threshing, about how those who work in the temple service get to partake of the temple sacrifice. But all of those examples have been about people partaking of their reward in this life. Materially. Paul now is distinguishing himself and saying, I am a partaker of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the freedom. And the freedom that comes with his death, which is what we're talking about here. The kingdom of God. This is Paul, the secret agent for the kingdom of God. He is the CIA of the kingdom here in this paragraph. And this is not the freedom that you get by having the shoes. It's the freedom you have by giving away the shoes. He will give away the shoes enough that he finally enjoys the freedom that he's been preaching to everyone else. It's funny you mentioned shoes. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? I know that's offensive in Minnesota. In fact, I think they actually barred a basketball team from playing the rest of their season because they were winning all their games and it wasn't fair. So 
they need to read 1 Corinthians. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So here, he's not saying exercise self-control in all things. He's saying everybody knows you have to exercise self-control in all things. Don't make this a morality story. But this is the Steve Jobs self-control where Steve Jobs says it's very difficult and hard work to be focused on the only thing that matters because everything else has to serve that end. And this is in order to create an iPhone. If he will exercise that much self-control in order to create an iPhone, how much more self-control will you be willing to exercise to focus only on the one thing that matters? But not so that you reach a destination in your Lenten journey because then you're just like those in the temple service who already have their reward. You have to change the way you think. That's why it's not a morality story. It's not about your morality because you think if you exercise self-control, you become a better person. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. You are irrelevant. If you strive like those who are worldly for something that is not worldly, then you are serving something that is imperishable. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's what I was just saying. But we, an imperishable. Do you want an iPhone? Or do you want the promise of the crucifixion, which is the kingdom of God? Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. You don't have correct priorities. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know why you're running or where you're going. You're no different than people who work on Wall Street and chase the dollar. That's what you are to me. Pointless. I box in such a way as not beating the air. This will be nice for my cousin, Robert Brandt. Robert, Paul was a boxer. This one's for you, buddy. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He is only focused on the freedom that comes through the crucifixion. Jesus was completely free because he had no master but God. Now, he was completely free, yet a slave to God. And all throughout the prophets, this is the teaching. I have made you free. I've given you everything. I've given you food. I've given you water. I've given you clothing. I've given you peace. I've given you families. I've given you flocks. And the first thing you do is you sacrifice the goat to Baal and you give your food to a king. And then you complain that the idol isn't coming through for you and the king just wants more from you. I gave you freedom. Give instead the goat and the produce to the weak. Give it to them. And then you'll be free. Then you won't have anything more to argue about. Then you won't have anything more to keep. Because eventually, if everyone functions this way, and you've given away so much that you've shuffled down to the bottom, now it circles back, and now you're the one to receive. If always everyone is taking care of the weakest, then it's like the football draft. The best teams get the last pick in the draft. So then the worst teams eventually become the best. The best teams eventually become the worst, and they keep shuffling through. Always strive to be the worst, because then you'll get the best. The thing about this epistle, this section of Paul's letter, is that no one can accept it. But there are moments in your life where you realize that it's true. And those are the moments that really hurt. And those are the moments where you have to rub this into yourself. You really have to hear what Paul is saying. 
that your duty is incontrovertible and it is thankless and there is no reward except your duty to the crucified Lord and you are nothing but a slave to that duty. There is no freedom for comfort's sake. Thanks very much, Dr. Brown. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.